What a beautiful day for the first week of March. We really need the rain, but we would rather God schedule it all at night with sunshine in the day. Um, sorry about the lighting. We can't control the lighting. Um, I would like to be able to see you better. I would like to be able to see here better, but we do not have control over everything. So uh, thank you, Bridge Kids. Uh, you're dismissed. The rest of us are going to be in Luke chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 20 through 40. We're going to be talking about test questions. This is a final exam, so we're going to have test questions. Do you like to take tests? I don't think I ever really enjoyed taking tests in high school or college or seminary. I don't know about you. I read about a college student taking a final exam in a logic class. I found that a pretty difficult class. Logic is in the area of philosophy. It's usually for philosophy majors. Uh, when it came time for the final exam, the professor in, in the classroom went ahead and reviewed all of the class notes and then reviewed uh, all of the reading that he wanted to cover uh, for that exam. And um, he told the students that the day before that uh, they could bring um, all the notes they wanted to, all the information they wanted to, on one piece of notebook paper, eight and a half by 11. And so people came into class and they were carrying their notes in a very tiny little print. And uh, one student surprised everybody, though. He came in, and he put down his notebook paper right beside him, and then brought in an advanced logic student and had him stand on that piece of notebook paper. Uh, it was very creative. And um, that logic, that student was the only student in the class who got an A for the course. There will be a final exam one day for all of us. If God asks you this question, why should I let you into my heaven? How would you respond? If he were to say, why should you be in my heaven? What would you say? No one is going to pass this exam on his or her own efforts. No matter how creative people come up with, the only way to pass the test is to have someone already with a perfect score to stand in for them. And the only one with a perfect score when it comes to that question is Jesus. Jesus himself faced a lot of difficult questions. Usually they were designed to embarrass him or to somehow deceive him or trick him. Our passage in Luke chapter 20 has two such questions. And uh, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 20, verses 20 through 40. And uh, I want to remind you, so back at Easter time, we jumped forward to Luke 24 and covered the resurrection. And then uh, we came upon, came upon the marathon weekend, and we departed from the Gospel of Luke. 
And then we came back to Mother's Day and child dedication, and we went back to Luke uh, chapter 19. And now we are jumping forward where we normally would be in Luke chapter 20, and we will, week by week, continue through the book of Luke. So today, in this passage, today would be Tuesday or Wednesday in the last week of Jesus' life, or what we've called Holy Week. Tuesday or Wednesday, by Friday, Jesus will be crucified. The first test question, should we pay taxes? I think that probably is a good question for us as well. And uh, we come to uh, Luke chapter 20, verses 20 uh, through, I'm going to read verses 20 uh, through 26, and let me uh, just read that for you, and I hope you'll follow along in the text. Keeping a close watch on him, they sent spies who pretended to be honest. They hoped to catch Jesus in something he said so that they might hand him over to the power and authority of the governor. So the spies questioned him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose portrait and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. They were unable to trap him in what he said there in public. And astonished by his answer, they became silent. So let's look at this passage. So regarding the setting, Jesus has been teaching in Jerusalem at the temple. You know, there's this long period of Jesus moving toward Jerusalem. He came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, the triumphal entry. And this is uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, and he's teaching in the, in the temple. Large crowds come to see him, as well as the religious leaders. Uh, earlier in chapter 20, this would be like a month ago, we saw how Jesus was challenged with his authority by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And then he told the parable of the vineyard, and it demonstrated that there was judgment coming. And then we just read verse 19, the verse before I, the passage I read, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately after he told this parable, because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. So that's kind of the backdrop here. Now, coming to verse 20, keeping a close watch on him. Who's keeping the close watch? The religious leaders. It includes the high priest. If we would go back to verse 1 in the chapter, it includes uh, the Pharisees. It, they are the teachers of the law. It includes the elders representing the tribes of Israel. Uh, this is a big, important group in Jerusalem. They're keeping a close watch on him. They sent spies who pretended to be sincere. So this is a pretend thing. This is a two-faced thing. This is where the word hypocrite fits. This is not their real intention. They are not sincere. They hope, this is their intention, to catch Jesus in something he said so they might hand him over to the power and authority we have a who, what, why. The who is the religious leaders, 
And the what is, they sent spies who pretended their intentions are to be crafty and deceitful. From the very beginning, their purpose is dishonesty. The why? Because they hoped to catch Jesus in the wrong. They hoped to turn him over to the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. They wanted Pilate to arrest Jesus. And by Friday, that's exactly what's going to happen. Verse 21, they give him flattery. So the spies question him. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right. And that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Everything they said about Jesus was true. He was a teacher. He was a great teacher. He did speak the truth, and he taught the truth, and he was not partial, and he was fair with all people. He did teach the way of God according to the scriptures. All true. One thing was not true. They didn't know this and they didn't believe it. It's a lie. The question in verse 22, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Good question. A tricky question. Designed to be a tricky question. Let's set this in the context of history. 33 AD, roughly, give or take, for, for this occasion. In the 6th AD, the Romans imposed a poll tax, meaning that every male in Judea needed to be taxed. And this was to show their authority and that the nation of Israel was in submission to Rome. And uh, the tax was to be one silver denarius, about a day's wages. The tax was required to be paid with a Roman denarius. And there were four currencies in, in Jerusalem during those days. So they had to get the Roman currency to do this. There was a, an inscription on the denarius with Tiberius Caesar's picture on both sides. One was the head, one was him sitting on a throne. On one side it said, uh, Tiberius Caesar, Augustus, son of divine Gussus. Son of divine Augustus. Interpretation, Caesar, son of God. The Jews understood what that meant. On the other side was a picture of him on the throne dressed in priestly clothes, and it said, Tiberius, highest priest. Those are terms that are fitting for Jesus, by the way, the son of God, and he is our great high priest. Um, so think of, about this as the backdrop to this question, okay? The answer of verses 23 that Jesus gives through 25, he saw through their du duplicity. He saw through their dishonesty that they weren't genuine. They didn't have genuine motives. And he said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it. Caesar's, they replied. Duh. Now, interesting thing here is, part of what the background here is, is that whatever Jesus answers to the question, should we pay taxes, if they say, yes, you should pay taxes to Rome, he's going to make the Jewish people in Jerusalem upset. 
because they feel like Rome is an invader, somebody's wanting to be the son of God and calling themselves the high priest, and they see this as blasphemy. And if, they, if, he, says yes, pay, if he says yes, pay taxes, he's going to upset Israel, the, Jerusalem, the leaders. If he says no, don't pay taxes, they're hoping he gets arrested by Pilate who is in the city. They hope that the Romans will be offended by this. They're trying to put him on the horns of dilemma where he can't win either way. Uh, so he, he saw through this. He asked for a denarius. He asked about the inscription. And Jesus brilliantly goes to the heart. He asked for this Roman denarius. So the interesting thing is, they, they have it. They're carrying one. So if they're not for this, why in the world do they have it? Is it only for the trick, or is this part of their system? All along, they've been paying taxes, and they're wanting to um, just confuse Jesus and uh, trick him. Jesus gives a profound answer in verse 25. He said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Give back to Caesar what's his. What's, what does he deserve? Well, he deserves the poll tax. Give him the denarius. He has it coming. It's due him. He provides safety in Israel. He provides a court system of justice. It's not perfect like any court system. He provides roads and safe travel by land and sea. There is a responsibility to God's people to honor the government that's present. So he says, pay your taxes. Give back to Caesar what is his. But give back to God what is God's. He says, you are to do both. What is due God? Honor, worship, praise, thanksgiving, sacrifice, offering your body to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Love one another, serve one another. Love the Lord with all your heart, mind, and soul. Honor the Lord with the first of your wealth, the first of all your produce. That's honor that's due him. Verse 26, the, re the response, they were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public. Astonished by his answer, they became silent. They're speechless. They don't know what to say. So here's the lesson. Jesus is more interested in changing the hearts of his people than he is in changing the government. I think Christians get confused about this sometimes. Jesus was more concerned about how the people of Israel, God's people, responded to, to 
render under Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but to render under to God what belongs to God, honor and worship and obedience. That's what the people of Jerusalem should have focused on. It's exactly what Jesus wants to focus on. Um, when you think about the Roman denarius, claiming that Tiberius was the son of the divine Augustus, it was a claim to be the son of God. And on the backside, he was claimed to be the highest priest. Those, those are titles deserving of Jesus. Jesus did not address this. Sometimes we Christians get offended so easily by things and we forget the main focus. Jesus said, pay your taxes and render unto to Caesar what is due Caesar. He didn't say it wasn't about worship. It was about the tax. Jesus is most concerned about how God's people represent God. But to, most importantly for us, to render under to God what is rightfully his by far the most important. Jesus' audience missed the point. They were caught up in a political squabbles. Some Christians get caught up in political squabbles today. And they forget how they are to behave. They, they forget how to represent Jesus. I like what Daryl Bach writes. He says, the political model for the church is to love God and one's neighbor. That should be at the forefront for us. Now, I'm all for people who want to get involved. We, we live in a great country. We have all kinds of privileges. We have freedom of speech, although some Christians, when they speak out, don't represent Christ very well. We have freedom of speech. We, we can disagree with our government. We have ways to go about it, and that's an awesome thing. But our first primary thing is to represent Christ and his kingdom. Okay, let's go on. That's the first question. And by the way, before I go on, I want you to know that in Jerusalem in the first century, the Judeans, southern Israel, were taxed about a third of their income. They paid 33%. They were in a 33% tax bracket. And God wanted them to honor him as well with their finances. Okay, secondly... Who gets the wife? Verses 27 through 40. First test question. Um, what do you, are, are we supposed to pay taxes? Second test question. Who gets the wife? Um, verse 27. Some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with the question. Trick question. It's not sincere. They don't really want to know the answer. They assume they understand everything. The high priests were Sadducees. They're in the audience. They were what we would call today religious liberals. They didn't necessarily take the word of God as true and reliable. They had a higher focus on the first five books of the Old Testament than the rest. They valued the Torah, the books of Moses, higher than the rest of the Old Testament. They did not believe in the supernatural, which is really crazy. 
Um, they did not believe in eternal life or eternal damnation. They did not believe in angels or miracles. They did not believe in the resurrection. There was often great tension between, in the religious community between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Pharisees are the religious liberals. They are the teachers of the law. Excuse me, they are the religious conservatives. They hold to the word of God as the word of God. They do believe in miracles and angels and the resurrection. So that's part of this audience that's uh, been asking questions. And the Sadducees come forth with this question. Um, the assumption, verse 28, Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, that man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So uh, this is a reference to uh, kind of an unusual law. It would be very unusual for the world we live in today, or especially our culture. It's a reference to the leveret marriage in the Old Testament. Um, God made a provision. Think in terms of this Israel as a nation are in, are in their infancy. And God has made a... Um, he, he has put a principle into their community to protect the family and to protect the inheritance of the family. Families were given land, and that land was passed from one generation, and the family's name, the goal was, to, was the family's name would continue and survive. And so there was a law in the Old Testament. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5 says, if brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. So a little unusual for us, it was a part of the Old Testament going back to the 15th century before Christ. And uh, it was a key feature, if you know, the book of Ruth. Ruth's husband had died without leaving an heir to his inheritance, which included land in Israel. Boaz was a near relative and took Ruth as his wife. Their child became a part of Jesus' human lineage, which is an amazing story. Now the Sadducees are going to pick an issue from the Bible that was taught by Moses because Moses is, they have Moses up here, the Leverett marriage. Now they give a case in verses 29 through 32. Now there were seven brothers. You can tell this is going to be crazy. The first one married a woman and died childless. That's really sad, but this is a hypothetical story. The second, and then the third, married her in the same way, and in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. This is really sad. Seven men married the same woman, and after the wedding night, they all died. She's a dangerous woman. Verse 32, finally, the woman died too. Who wouldn't? 
the question, verse 33, now then at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Now they think this is the supreme question. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. Uh, The idea of the resurrection is ridiculous to them. The case of multiple marriage just proves how silly believing in the resurrection would be. So who gets the wife? Really important question, verses 34 through 38. The answer, Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. Well, yeah, that's just like it is for us today. That's how we produce life. That's how we have families. 35. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. This applies to those who are worthy to take part in the age age to come. Are you worthy to take part in the age to come? If you were asked that on the final exam, how would you answer that? Jesus said, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor given in marriage. And then he says, verse 36, and they can no longer die for they are like angels. They are not angels. They do not have wings. And sometimes I hear Christians Sort of assume that if you go to heaven, you become an angel. Not so. But Jesus said they are like angels because there will be no more death and there will be no more dying and there will be no more children born because the way the future kingdom is designed is different than the than the era that we live in. Um, We're going to be like angels in the sense that they they don't marry. They they are eternal. They don't die. They don't have any need to procreate. Um, So there's a big question here that I'm not going to answer, but the big question, the answer that I do have is I believe... This new kingdom, this new age is going to include a total completion of sexuality on a different plane. Now, if you wonder what that means, you can ask me afterwards. But... And, and then Jesus says they are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. Now Jesus is going to go to Exodus chapter 3. He's going to go right to Moses. The Sadducees have a high view of the first five books. But in the account of the burning bush, Exodus 3, even Moses showed that the dead rise. Jesus thinks there are implications in Exodus 3 for the resurrection. For he, Moses, calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. This is our God, the God of the living. The God of Abraham, because Abraham is still alive. God of Isaac, because... And each one of these has a personal relationship with God. 
It isn't just the God of all three, it's the God of each one. And each one, Isaac and Jacob, are alive. Because God is the God of the living. And for Jesus, this reveals the implications for the resurrection. So uh, Exodus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says this. And this is the passage where God reveals his personal name to Moses. This is an amazing experience that Moses had. He says, and God said, do not come any closer. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham. This is where he reveals God's name is I am, Yahweh. And this is his personal name. So in the Old Testament, whenever you read the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's Yahweh's name. I am. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So Yahweh is still their God personally, and they are still alive, and they were waiting for God to fulfill all of his promises. There are many passages in the Old Testament that speak of the resurrection, and there are many, many more that speak of the resurrection in the New Testament. In the Old Testament passages like Isaiah 26, Psalm 16, and Daniel 12, the response, verses 39 through 40, some of the teachers of the law responded, well said, teacher. So these are the Pharisees. These are the, these are the conservatives. And no one dared to ask him any more questions. He had silenced them. And um, the Pharisees at this point think they've just won an argument and just proven that there is the resurrection because Jesus just did it for them. So implications. First implication here. The resurrection is a very real concept for a Christ follower as it relates to eternal life. Some of you don't know what to think of this. The New Testament is very clear about the doctrine of the resurrection. There will be a resurrection of the body. And it, there will be a resurrection whether you believe it or not. It isn't about what you think. It's about what Scripture says. It's about God's promises. You will be given a new body if you're a Christ follower, and you will be in the new creation, and there will be an eternal kingdom. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 42 through 44, the Apostle Paul writes this about the resurrection. And the, by the way, read the whole chapter, 58 verses about the resurrection. For the Christian. It's all based on the resurrection of Jesus, okay? So will be the resurrection of the dead. The body, this is for a resurrection for believers, the body that is sown is perishable because we put a body in a grave because it's going to decay and we don't want it out in public. The, the body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It's going to be immortal. It is sown in dishonor. 
It is raised in glory. It's going to be new. It's sown in weakness and frailty because we can't overcome physical death. It is raised in power, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. It is sown a natural, physical body. It is raised a spiritual body. It's going to be a lot different. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And I've never seen one, but I believe what Paul wrote. Second implication. The life we have now is all there is in this life. There are no do-overs. Make it count for Jesus. You know, we're, we're, we're used to that concept of grace, where we get forgiven over and over and over, and that's awesome. But somehow, we, sometimes we think we can put things off. That, yeah, I'd like to be closer to Christ. I'd like to be, have a bigger commitment to Christ. I'd like to do more, but I'm so busy. I'm so busy. It, life is just too hectic. Life is going to be short. What are you going to make of it? There are going to be no do-overs, and what you do today, you will be reminded of in eternity. Paul ends the resurrection chapter with 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. He says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Resurrection is coming. Life is hard now. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Don't let your busy schedule move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. I sometimes wonder if Christians think it doesn't make any difference, that what I do for God really doesn't make any difference. And it does. Absolutely, it does. In another college exam, it was the final exam at Hannibal LaGrange College, there was a unique final where the students came into the class, there was a class review. When it was time to take the exam, the professor walked around to each desk and he put the exam on the desk and he turned it over and he told everybody in the class, I don't want you to look at your exams until everybody has one. Then he told the class, okay, turn your papers over. Every question was already answered. Every exam already had the student's name written on it. At the end of the exam, in the right-hand corner of the exam, it said, this is the end of the exam. All the answers on the test are correct. You will receive an A on the final exam. The reason you passed the exam is because the creator of the exam took it for you. All the work you did in preparation for this test did not help you get the A. You have just experienced grace. Now, don't you wish you had somebody like that in school? Next, the professor went around the room to each student and asked each one the same questions. What is your grade? A. Do you deserve the grade you are receiving? No. How much studying for the exam helped you achieve your final grade? Zero. If you are a follower of Christ, you have already received your grade as a, fo as a follower of Christ. 
The Creator already took the exam for you. So, how then will you live? Will you render to God what is God's? Will you offer up what it belongs to God to Him with your life? Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and his leadership and his wisdom. May we know um, as we follow him that he understands the difficulty in life and he understands hard questions that we face. He understands the nature of sin. He understands the nature of stress. He understands the hardship of being without finances. He understands the hardship of physical pain, and we can trust him, and we can give our lives to him. We can offer up our bodies as living sacrifices to him because he is worthy. Lord, help us to be the people that you want us to be for Jesus' sake. Amen.